All right, well, guys, we are sadly, I think, at our last session on the book of Philippians. This is actually our 21st message. And I'd have to say, as, as we finish this series, I finish it with a fair degree of sadness. One of the joys of being a pastor is you get to, particularly when you're preaching most of the time, you get to actually start to feel like the times that you're sitting with Paul in the cell and he's talking to you. And so when you find that you're moving on to different books, there's a degree of excitement in that, but you feel like you're leaving behind a friend. It's actually the way you start to feel because you're walking with these men and feel like he's been teaching me throughout this and been meeting the Lord in this book, as I know so many of you have. And so let's turn our attention to Philippians 4, reading the final three verses. If you want a title for this morning's message, I've called it Yours Sincerely, Paul. And these are his words. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Well, Lord, what a wonderful letter the book of Philippians is, to gather around your word, to hear the, apostles, the Apostle Paul's words, but through his words, your words, Lord, is to be invigorated. Lord, thank you for the way you presence yourself as we preach your word. Thank you for the, the work you do in our hearts to reveal to us the gospel, to reveal to us the glories of who you are, of where we need to go in your grace. And Lord, did you have your way amongst us again today? Help me, Lord. Amen. You know, I don't think I will ever forget my first time on a plane. I was 22 years old, which is quite old for many people to actually for the first time to go on a plane. But I was 22 years old and I was going to Malta with Emma, who I was dating at the time, and her entire family. And then my family were going to be meeting us there as well. And I was just so excited about going on a plane. I barely slept for weeks prior. I couldn't wait to just go on a plane. And it didn't fail either. I mean, I sat on the plane and the first thing I realised is they are giving out free snacks. Free snacks. I couldn't believe it. This is awesome. And they're like, do you want some peanuts? I'm like, oh yes, please. I will. Does anybody else want them belong here? It was amazing. And then when takeoff came, it was just great. It's just exhilarating. You think, I am taking off and you're sitting back in your chair and you've been pushed back in your chair and you just think this is totally awesome and then when you're in the air they say oh would you like some lunch and you're like is that free yes it's free lunch this is amazing the whole experience was awesome i'll never forget my first time on a plane and yet 18 years later having now been on a plane many 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 times i'd have to say the novelty is well and truly worn off it doesn't carry the same surprise. I don't sleep, you know, I sleep fine. I don't miss any sleeps prior to going on a plane these days because so much of going on a plane to me has now become monotonous. So yes, the snacks are free, but they're always the same. The meals come out and it is always chicken or beef. I mean, whatever it is, Thai Airways, doesn't matter, Indian Airways, doesn't matter, it's chicken or beef. That's all you've got to choose from whenever you're on a plane. The takeoff is good, but it lasts 30 seconds. And for the rest of the time, you're bored stiff. You know, you just get bored. But the thing that is most monotonous, I think, 
is the moment when the flight attendant asks for your undivided attention and they want to talk you through the safety instructions. And you're all nodding because you remember this part of the journey. Because when they ask for your undivided attention, you don't give it to them, do you? Because you've heard it all before many, many times. And I must admit, I'm exactly the same. I sit there and the flight attendant asks for their undivided attention and you sort of pretend that you're giving their undivided attention, but you're listening to the radio because you've already plugged in even though you're not meant to. Your belt's already attached. You could give the instructions for the flight attendant so you assume there is nothing new, nothing possible that I could learn from this moment, so I'm just going to fade out. Well, my concern as we come to this text, my primary concern, is that I think you could all too easily this morning be tempted to think of me as a flight attendant and approach this moment just like we do the moment when the flight attendant tells us the safety instructions. We assume from this section entitled Final Greetings that surely there is nothing for me to be gaining here. What on earth has this got to do with anything? Surely this is Paul just finishing off the book. And so thanks very much, Dave. Thanks for letting us know that. Thanks for reading it out to us. This is great. I'm going to cut to Facebook and do something more important and let me know when you've finished. We can assume there's nothing here for us. And yet I think that would be a catastrophic assumption. See, Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent equipped for every good work all scripture including final greetings are breathed out by God and it's when you slow your pace and realize that and you look again at this section of final greetings that you realize what Paul is doing here is issuing us with a very important PS. See, I remember in the good old days, because I'm 40 this year, can't believe it either, I'm only 39, so that's why you're looking at me thinking, you look so young, It's because like, I am this week, but at the end of the year I'm 40. I remember when I was a bit younger and people would actually write to you. You know, you'd get letters, do you remember that? With stamps on and things. It would be amazing. And whenever you got a letter, one thing's for sure, if you saw a PS at the bottom of the letter, you'd pay attention to it, right? Because you knew there was something unique in that PS, something that the writer wanted to give to you, something that they wanted to give to you of unique importance, and you paid careful attention to the PS. Well, this is Paul's PS. And so we need to pay careful attention to this PS. You see, one might have anticipated that this letter would finish at the end of verse 20. And so we read from verse 19, And my God will supply every need of yours, according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen! Think, oh, that's lovely. Great. We're done. But Paul's not done. He has a very important PS for us something of unique worth, something that he wants to share with us, which is very important, something that is breathed out by God and therefore worthy of our full attention, a PS in which Paul tells us about our identity, our relationships and our hope. And when we see that, 
what an incredible PS this becomes. See, Martin Luther once said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. It does. My prayer is that these three verses would do that for us today. They would speak to us. They would run after us. They would lay hold of us. That our lives may be impacted by a piece of scripture that otherwise we may have just discarded as a safety announcement. So three points. Here's the first. Number one, our identity. You know, as Paul pens this letter to the Philippians, he's writing to a church that he dearly loves. Just 15 years prior to this moment, he planted this church. He got to preach the gospel to this church. He was there when Lydia got saved. He was there when the demon-possessed slave girl got saved. He was there when the jailer got saved. He was there when this church began. He was the church planter. And he holds them so dear in his life with great affection. And so as one who loves them, as he closes this letter and begins to pen this PS, he very deliberately then wants to help them see their identity. And in particular, their identity as saints. Look with me in your Bibles at verse 21. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Then verse 22, all the saints greet you. Twice in two verses, Paul draws our attention to our identity as saints. Twice in two verses, he wants this Philippian church to realize that they are saints and what wise and considered and kind pastoring this is. See, this is what Jerry Bridges says about the word saint. Listen carefully. He says, saint is one of the most widely misunderstood words in our Christian vocabulary. I believe he's right. The word saint is most often misunderstood. He then continues, at some point in church history, people began calling the original apostles saints, contrary to the plain meaning of the word in the New Testament. So now we hear of St. Paul, and St. Peter, and St. Andrew, and the like. In Roman Catholic tradition then, people of unusual achievement are sometimes designated as saints. And among evangelicals today, we often think of saints as exceptionally godly and holy people. That's so true, isn't it? Among evangelicals, we so often think of saints as the original apostles. And so we see churches all around Sydney, St. Matt's, St. Paul, St. Andrews, and it's emphasized that in some way maybe these are the saints. It's the apostles. They're, They're the saints. And then we add to that in Christianity that additionally it would probably be people that are really super godly that have really got it together and they are then known as the saints. But, Mr. Bridges writes, but the truth, however, is that every believer is a saint. I love that. A church could be named after any one of you. Can you imagine that? Oh, St. John's. St. David's, St. Lucifer's, you know, know, whatever your name is, you can be known as a saint because Paul is trying to emphasize for us here that in all reality, if you are a Christian, you are a saint. 
Everyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior is a saint. Everyone who has been saved and set apart through the blood of Jesus Christ is a saint. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then by very nature, you're a saint. Not because of your behavior, but because of the finished work of Jesus Christ in your place. Before there was even time, He he chose you for salvation. He then at the right time sent His Son on the greatest rescue mission ever told. Jesus Christ came and died in our place and made it possible through putting our faith in Him to be forgiven of our sin and justified and adopted into the very family of God to know for sure that heaven is our home and throughout all this process He made it possible then for the judge to declare over our lives you're not only forgiven of your sin, you're not only made righteous, you are therefore a saint. So I declare you to be a saint. Isn't that incredible? And Paul, in all reality wants this local church to understand this life-changing position and status before the Lord. He wants them to get it. He wants them to understand, you are saints and I want you to get it because I love you. So in chapter 1, verse 1, we read, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, listen, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. All of you. Not just a few, but all of you. All of the church of Philippi. You're saints. And then he concludes in verse 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. In verse 22, all the saints greet you. What wise and caring pastoring this is, as Paul emphasizes to them. Twice in two verses, this is who you are. Philippi. Your saints. That is wise and caring pastoring. Because I submit to you, it's when we grow cold to our identity in Christ, when we grow cold to who we really are as saints, that we can all too easily then begin to believe that maybe God is just tolerating us. Maybe I don't really fit here. And maybe before the Lord, I, maybe I don't really fit with Him either. And so, yeah, I'm a Christian. But He must be tolerating me. He must be disappointed with me. I think Paul knows that this local church could so easily feel that. And God knows it too, which is why He's inspired in the Scripture for us to read to this day. See, one of the things we do in our home and I've always done in our home, is we have a family night once a week. I mean, we try and spend like more time as a family than just one night, but we do have one night designated where guaranteed we're going to be together as a family. And odds are on in our family, we're going to watch a movie. We love watching movies. Now, we haven't watched hundreds of movies. Actually, we've watched about three movies hundreds of times. There's just a few movies that we just keep going back to. And one of our favourite movies, which is just awesome, is Cheaper by the Dozen. You know, and now and again we watch the first one, and other times we watch the second one, and then we go back to the first one. And we just love Cheaper by the Dozen. I mean, this dude has got more pe- more children than Patrick. It's just, it's, it's amazing. They've got 12 kids, and there's this story about all these kids and this family. And my favourite character by far in the story, particularly in Cheaper by the Dozen 1, is this little boy that they call FedEx. 
And he's called FedEx because this little guy, he's about this tall and he's pretty quirky. You know, he's got really big glasses going on, he's bright ginger hair, he likes sort of catching frogs. You know, he's kind of, you know, a bit alternative in the way he lives his life. And so all the other kids nickname him FedEx because they're convinced that our mum didn't actually give birth to you, the FedEx man dropped you off. So they call him FedEx. And as you follow his story through the movie, what you realise is FedEx feels totally tolerated by his family. And so he knows he's a part, but he doesn't really feel like he fits. I think in the last 15 years of being a pastor, I've encountered many Christians that feel like FedEx. Just this week I was with an individual that was under the impression that due to their behaviour, God must be tolerating them. And they're not in this room outside of our church. But they felt, because of my behaviour, God must be so disappointed with me. God must be tolerating me. I don't even know if I'd fit in a church, given who I am. Well, my friends, maybe you feel like that. Maybe you feel like God is just tolerating you. You're in, but he's just putting up with you. Because you're aware of all your failures. You're aware of the times when you just let him down heroically. You're aware of the times when you know you should be doing something, but you're not. You're not doing the things you are, and you just feel like, I don't don't even know if I fit. God must be so disappointed with me and must be tolerating me. Well, I have good news for you. If that's the way you feel, I want to inform you that your feelings are totally and utterly wrong. Because there is no doubt, as biblically defined, God passionately and personally loves you. And I know it as a fact. Because if you are a Christian, then before there was even time, He chose you. At the right time, He sent His Son for you. So that you could be forgiven of your sin and redeemed to a relationship with the Lord and adopted into His very family. And that you can know that heaven is your home. And he did this for you, even though it would cost him the very life of his son. And yet, having put your faith in him as your Lord and Saviour, he's not only forgiven you and redeemed you and justified you, he's sung over your life this word, you are a saint. When he looks at you, he sees you clothed in the righteousness of his son. Do you get that? He sees you robed in the righteousness of his son. So even if in reality you're aware of where you blow it, the sins of omission and the sins of commission, as he views you, he sees you clothed in the righteousness of his son and therefore he passionately and personally loves you and will do until the day you go be with him. Is that not scandalous grace? It is scandalous grace. But it is the grace that the Bible sings over each and every one of us. It is outrageous grace. But it is also a guarantee that I can say without doubt, he's not tolerating anyone. He passionately and personally loves you because you have been declared to be a saint. Well, Paul knows this to be true. And so he wants this Philippian church, at the end of this letter, where they may be potentially overwhelmed, to be aware, you're saints. He loves you. He always will. What caring and gracious pastoring this is, don't you think? We need to know it. We 
We need to know our identity in Christ is as saints. But that's not all Paul tells us in these closing verses. He also talks to us about, number two, our relationships. See, through the grace of God, we are indeed saints before the Lord. We always will be. Till the day you die, you will be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And on the day when you do die, you'll go be with Jesus and he will glorify you. He will make you perfect. What a day that's going to be, don't you think? No longer sinning because you won't want to. It will be removed from you. And you will see and run and act in glorious perfection for the first time in your life. And yet through the grace of God, we're not only saints before the Lord. Through the grace of God, we are also family. Look with me at verse 21 again. It says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus, the brothers who are with me, greet you. One word can easily be overlooked, but it shouldn't be overlooked. Brothers. Time and again, Paul seeks to emphasize to his churches, your brothers, your family. And I think, to be honest with you, I think it's something we know, something we can be familiar with, And yet when you really stop and think about it, this declaration over our lives that we are family, that's profound. That's incredible. And we've all heard the phrase, blood is thicker than water, haven't we? I grew up with it. Heard it all the time. My parents are Christians, know the Lord. My grandparents don't know the Lord. And so one of the things we heard growing up all the time from my grandma is, David, blood is thicker than water. So it's good that you're spending time with that community church people. But blood is thicker than water. And we were told it all the time. Blood is thicker than water. And my friends, I think it is true. When people are joined by blood, then they should always have a special place in our heart, shouldn't they? See, in headline, I totally agree with the phrase, blood is thicker than water. It is. Blood is indeed thicker than water. When we are joined through blood, these people should always have special family affection in our heart. But I think what my grandparents failed to realise, and I think what many Christians fail to realise, is that the church is also joined through blood. Not the blood of our parents, but someone far more profound. The church is joined through the blood of Jesus Christ. Through his death and through his blood, he's taken people that are random and would have been aliens and strangers to from one another and put us together and said, now, through my blood, your family. I'm bringing you together in the context of a local church so that you can be brothers and sisters together. Not just people that go, oh, hi, bro. How's it going? Yeah, hi, bro. But, you know, lose the lingo, give the reality. Because we're family. As biblically defined, as theologically informed, we are family joined through the blood of Jesus Christ. Blood is thicker than water and his blood is precious and profound and unites us as a church. See, all the one another's of scripture, I think, then start to make sense. They tend to become all the more incredible to us. 
I mean, here's just a sampling. Here's a sampling of how we are to operate as a family. And as I read out the sampling, don't think about the person next to you. Don't think about the people in your group. Think about yourself. Am I operating this way to those around me? Mark chapter 9, verse 50. Be at peace with one another. John 13, verse 34. Love one another. Romans 12, verse 5. Be joined to one another. Romans 12, verse 10. Listen to this. Be devoted to one another. Biblical command on our lives. Romans 15, verse 7. Accept one another. Romans 12, verse 15. Rejoice with one another and weep with one another. Romans 15, verse 14. Counsel one another. Galatians 3, 15. Serve one another. Galatians 6, 2. Carry one another's burdens. Carry them. Stand alongside each other and carry them for one another. Ephesians 4, verse 32, forgive one another. Colossians 3, 13, bear with one another. 1 Peter 4, verse 9, offer hospitality to one another. James 5, verse 16, pray for one another. 1 John 1, verse 7, fellowship with one another. That's just a mere sampling of over 50 one another's in the Bible. And Paul's point throughout is, here's why those one another's are so important. They're so important because you're family. We're family. Joined through the blood of Jesus, you are my brothers and sisters. As they say, you can't always pick your family. Welcome to church. But God picks us. And God joins us together. He says, now care for one another. Weep together. Rejoice together. Laugh together. Carry one another's burdens. In Romans 16, verse 16, Paul then says, greet one another. And certainly in these closing verses of Philippians, that is certainly on show. This is like a greet fest going on in these verses, isn't it? There's greeting everywhere. And so verse 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. You know, I never knew... I mean, honestly, until this week, what greeting really was biblically. If you'd asked me last week, what does it mean to greet? I would have said, oh, you know, it's like we do on the doors. Hey, welcome, thanks for coming. Negative. (laughs) That's not what it means. In the Greek, when you would see the word greet, what it means is this, engaging in hospitable recognition. Engaging in hospitable recognition of another. So when we greet someone, it isn't just, hey, hey, what's up? Greet them. I'm doing what Judas is told. Paul told me. Romans 16. Greeted. Greeted. Hey, done. He's saying, no, no. We need to offer hospitable recognition. So we don't just say, hey. We engage with that individual. And through that engagement, we let them know If you are the only person in the world, I'm giving you my attention. 
because you're my brother and you're my sister and I care about you. How are you? That's greeting. It's biblically defined. It's being bothered about people. Stopping and pausing and engaging with those people. Greeting one another with love and affection and hospitality. And so you see it going on here without doubt. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, listen, as you read this out to the saints, as you read this out to the church, please greet them for me. Let them know that I love them. Let them know that I I long to be with them. Let them know that I think about them with such great affection. I love this local church. So when you read it out, please greet the saints in Christ Jesus for me. Oh, and the brothers who are with me, they greet you. These guys that are helping support me here in prison, here in chains in Rome, so what you know, they, they greet you, they love you as well. Many of them have not met you, but hey, I talk about you all the time, Philippi, and they feel like they know you, and they're your brothers and your sisters. So, so the brothers here, they want to greet you as well. They want you to know of their affection for you. And in fact, not just them, but all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. I mean, how encouraging that last statement must have been. Paul is in chains in Rome, but here we have another reminder to the Philippi church that through his chains the gospel is going forward. Some people even in Caesar's household are coming to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. That's unlikely to be the literal household. I mean, what it would work like is like you know Caesar's civil service in effect. So all these people that were serving Caesar, that were his slaves, his servants, what Paul's saying is many of them have come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour through me being here in Rome and preaching the gospel here in Rome. And they want you to know, since they've become your family, they want you to know that they greet you as well. They have so much love and affection for you. As I've talked to them about who you are as a church, they just want you to know they love you. And so they send their greetings to you as well. Why? Because they're family. Why is greeting so important? Because we're family. Why are the one another's of Scripture so important? Because we're family. All that in one word. Brothers. It's not throwaway. It's breathed out by God, purposeful for teaching. My friends, I want to ask you a question. As you look around this room, what do you see? Just do it. Take a moment. Look around. I know it's embarrassing. It's awkward. But I have to do it when I preach. You're all there. So. When you look around this room, what do you see? Do you see faces? Or do you see family? Do you see just faces on people that you think, yeah, you know, I got a church with them. Not quite sure their name. But do you see family? Do you see people that you think, well, I'm with them right now, but you know, I'm only renting a house and I'm not sure, you know, I might be might be gone in a few months, you can never tell. Or do you see people that you're committed to and joined to because through the blood of Jesus you've been joined as family? And therefore, people, you want to carry their burdens, you want to care about them, you want to weep with them, you want to rejoice with them, 
You want to serve them. You want to confess your sin to them. You want to counsel them. You want to offer fellowship with them. You want to pray with them because they're family. My friends, if you do not see family as you look around the room, I want to encourage you to cry out to God then for grace in this. Because if you don't see family, what you're seeing does not fall into line with what we see in this word. Because our eyes aren't seeing what Paul is defining for us here as brothers, sisters, family. People we're joined to in Christ. If you don't think of the people around you as family, then I want to encourage you, cry out to the throne of grace. And here's my assurance, he will help you. God in his grace can change your heart in a moment. God in his grace will assist you and give you grace that you may start to operate and think of one another as family. And he will respond as we cry out to him because he is our hope. His grace is the only way to bring about this significant change in our lives. And it's to that end that Paul now closes the entire letter. Number three, our hope. Look with me closing at verse 23. He says, And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You know, to tour through the book of Philippians, you know, I think it's to be inspired, isn't it? I mean, I'm invigorated. As we spend time in this book, I, I just think it's fascinating and so inspiring. I mean, to Paul... To live is Christ and to die is gain. You remember that? You're introduced to this guy who's in a cell and he's not sure if he's going to end up being martyred for the faith, which would mean being dragged out of his cell, brought into the middle of a colosseum and then fed to a hungry lion. Or, shall I live, which is Christ? To die is gain, to live is Christ. I can't decide. I'm not sure. This is Paul. He's so affected by Jesus Christ, so amazed with Jesus Christ, as long as he's got Jesus, he's fulfilled. And he holds his relationship with Jesus out to us and says, listen, this isn't just for me, this is for you as well. You can have a relationship with Jesus Christ like this, where you are totally and utterly besotted with who he is. He also holds out for us the rare jewel of contentment, doesn't he? The rare jewel where he helps us see we can't just base our lives in the horizontal. As we look up before the Lord, we can find contentment there, whatever's happening in the horizontal. And he holds it out to us and says to us, I want you to have this. I want this to be your experience. Throughout this whole letter then, he also emphasizes the high and holy calling on our lives. To live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. To live in a manner worthy of the blood of Jesus Christ that has been spilt in our place. That's inspiring, isn't it? What a bold accolade. What a bold aim on our lives to live in a manner worthy of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, to walk then in unity with one another, standing firm in the gospel and striving side by side in the gospel, eager to maintain the unity. And so we stand together as a battalion, as a local church, in our armour, and we stand firm for the gospel. We ensure that we don't have secondary issues taking place of the primary issues of the gospel. There is diversity within secondary issues, 
but that there is unanimity in the one big issue, namely that Jesus Christ died in our place. And on that gospel we stand firm and we strive side by side to take the gospel forward. This is invigorating and inspiring stuff. To make it possible, we're called to emulate Christ in his humility. To be like him, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. We're called to emulate his example of humility, who doesn't count equality with the Father something to be grasped. He made himself a servant, the servant of the people. And the cry of Paul's heart is, emulate him, be like him. Consider others more important than yourself. Walk in humility and unity and live then as lights in this world demonstrating and displaying concern for the welfare of others, like Timothy does, demonstrating and displaying a sacrifice for the cause of Christ, like Epaphroditus does, demonstrating and displaying a love for the Saviour, like Paul does, who considered all things lost for the surpassing joy of knowing Jesus Christ, who just wanted to know Christ above everything else in his life, and demonstrating and displaying a partnership in the Gospel, to see the gospel go forward like the Philippian church does. I mean, to read this letter is to be inspired, is it not? To see Paul's closeness with Jesus and the call on of our lives. Man, I just want to, I, I, I would be, I'd be okay if this was the only book in the Bible. I mean, seriously, you just think, this is amazing. It's inspiring. And yet I think if we're honest, we can find ourselves not only inspired, we can find ourselves overwhelmed. Overwhelmed as we realise all the things we've got to change. All the things we're not like Epaphroditus. All the things we're not like Timothy. All the things we're not like Paul. All the things we're not like Christ. We can be inspired, but we can also all too easily be overwhelmed, can't we? And that's why Paul wants to take our hand and remind us as he closes of our hope. The hope that we have to actually make it. The hope that we have to actually change. The hope that we have to actually move forward together. And that hope, he makes clear to us, is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And so he starts the letter in chapter 1, verse 2. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells him right up front, I want this letter to bring you grace. I want it to bring you peace. I want you to see Christ in this letter. I want you to see the high and holy calling on your lives. I want you to see what God holds out for each and every one of us in terms of a relationship with him and finding contentment in him. And then he closes this letter back where he started, knowing that the Philippian church and indeed us now in following could all too easily be overwhelmed with how are we going to do this? And so he closes with a prayer, verse 23, and may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Why? Because he's your only hope. It's the only way you're going to apply the letter. 
It's the only way you're going to know Christ like it talks about in here. It's the only way we're going to walk in unity like it talks about here. It's the only way we're going to consider others more important than ourselves like it talks about here. Through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, if you find yourself overwhelmed this morning and like me, aware of areas in need of change, that's me. I want to encourage you. Sing closing. Listen, in true change, we have a part to play. This is not a let go and let God moment. We don't get to the end of the letter and just say, well, hey, what are going to do? It's all the grace of God. Now, very clearly in chapter 2, verse 12, Paul calls us to work out our salvations with fear and trembling. We have a part to play. There are things we need to do by way of training ourselves for the purpose of godliness. These loving one another, there are actions that we actually have to take place. We have a responsibility to bear on our lives as we work out our salvations with fear and trembling. In true change, we have a part to play. Here is the emphasis which Paul leaves us with. In true change, we have a great God to whom we can look to for help. One who in all grace began a good work in us and assures that he he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. One who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. One who assures us that he will never leave or forsake us but he will help us and aid us for the entire road ahead. Our hope is in Jesus. And so how fitting for Paul to say, you know what? Here then is my point and prayer to close. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, Philippi. You need grace. And may you know his grace. You know, when you get a letter with a PS at the bottom... You pay careful attention to it, don't you? Because there's something unique in it. And so it is here. It's not just a final greeting. It's God's word. For the Bible is alive, it speaks to us, it has feet, it runs after us, it has hands, it lays hold of us. I trust that these words have laid hold of you today. Because your identity in Christ is as a saint. You're a saint. Tell your friends, listen, I'm a saint, this is awesome. Don't tell unbelievers because it's really freaky. But for everybody else, let them know. You know, I'm a saint. When people in your life group are saying, I just feel so defeated, I I just feel overwhelmed, I just suck. Well, you know what? Well, let's by grace work on that and go through sanctification. But here's what I want to know. Before the Lord, you're a saint. He sings over you because you've been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. You're a saint. Do you know that? Your identity before the Lord is as a saint. And your relationships to one another and my relationships to you are as family, brothers and sisters. And our only hope, if we're going to make it, is in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's my prayer for this local church as we conclude this letter to the Philippians. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we need you and we need you every hour. 
Lord, we thank you for your word, the clarity of this book of Philippians. Lord, we thank you for the way it ministers to our soul. It is alive. It does run after us. It does hold us. And Lord, I pray that we've all been inspired by this word. Lord, as we conclude, I'm aware that there are also possibly people here that are overwhelmed by it. Aware of all the areas we fail, all the things that we do do that we know we shouldn't, all the things that we don't do that we know we should. Lord, the banner that decries across our lives is that we're saints and we're family and our hope is in you. So Lord, help us to be a church that is desperately dependent then on you. Help us to be a church that moves forward, but moves forward on our knees. Aware that we need you, we need your grace. And Lord, I thank you that everything in you is all we need. Your grace is sufficient for us in our weakness, and our discouragement, and our challenges. Your grace is sufficient. So would we rest in you? And would we run to you? Because all we need is you. In Jesus' name, amen.